G'day everyone, I'm Dave, I'm one of the pastors here. I met a guy called Tristan uh, around 10 years ago uh, at the first church I ever worked at as a minister. And Tristan was around 20 when we met and uh, had come from a, a divorced family. I think his mum was a Christian. Uh, and so you know, he was slightly involved in church uh, in his early years. But by around 15, 16, uh, he got really heavily uh, involved uh, through a Christian group at school, and, he, and by the time I got there, he was a just you'd think a, a solid kind of Christian young man, heavily involved in uh, helping with ministries, uh, with music, I think it was, and uh, pack up and set up, and yeah, you know, typical kind of guy. After in six months of knowing him, he actually went overseas. He went to a majority world country uh, with a Christian charity for in six months. Um, to, to help them and I think to do some Bible teaching as well. But when he got back from there, uh, it was obvious that something had changed for Tristan. Um, he, he came to church the first week, I remember. I think we interviewed him at the front about his time. But then after two or three weeks, he stopped coming. Well, he did this kind of the dance, you know, <laughs> come every couple of weeks. Oh, oh. Um, I began to notice, um, I, I'm observant like this, you don't need to worry about this, but he would always have nightclub stamps on his wrists and try and hide it, you know, or, or try and like wash it off. Um, and I'm like, mate, you're not fooling anyone. You know, there's this, not that you can't go to a nightclub, I'm not saying that, but he just, it was obvious that, that he was um, veering away from his face. So after a while of trying to meet up with him, we, he eventually agreed to and we sat down and had a coffee uh, and I said, hey man, how are you going with God? And he shared with me that uh, while he was overseas uh, with the Christian charity, he, um, he found himself bored, really bored um, with what he was doing. And there was a group of uh, Aussies and Canadians and you know, expat Westerners, non-Christians, uh, who were nearby, a big crew that were doing something or other. And he began to hang out with them, and they lived a completely different way. Um, it was his first real sort of introduction, I suppose, to the world of casual sex and drunkenness and low-level drugs and that kind of stuff. And uh, he began to see that and yearn for it and want it. And he resisted it at first, but after a while he began to sneak out of the sort of the Christian compound he was in and, and go out. And so by the time he got back, he'd really decided, that, well, this is better than what I've had. Um, I don't want this anymore. Um, ten years on now, uh, he's not a Christian. Um, still friends on Facebook, and it's clear uh, he um, jumped both feet first into um, to, uh, the world that he sort of first experienced at that time. The church that first received this letter to the Hebrews that we're looking at, and we've been studying over the last few weeks, um, was a church in a lot of uh, pressure and stress and trial and temptation. And you know what? Even though it was 2,000 years ago, uh, it wasn't that different uh, to much of what we go through in our own lives, their own stress. But there was an acute particular kind of pressure that they were under. And it, it had to do with um, uh, a pressure, uh, an allure, a temptation um, to view life outside of Jesus as better than Jesus. These guys were converts to Christianity from another religion. They, they were converts from Judaism. And so they were surrounded, they were in a community, um, they had family and friends who did not understand Christianity, who did not understand what they had done, why they would do it. And so there was this constant pressure to abandon this new faith and to return back to the faith that they'd been part of. The constant pressure to go, um, Jesus is not better, um, 
life outside of Jesus is better. And they were susceptible to that. And I want to say, whilst our um, direct cultural experience is obviously uh, incredibly different to that, I'm utterly persuaded that this type of temptation, that the temptation of um, looking at life outside of Jesus, and whether that's your own life before you were a Christian, or probably more common, um, looking at the lives of your non-Christian friends, of family, of people you went to school with, or you're at uni or work, um, and looking at their lives and being in, just enslaved with jealousy, and just the sense that you're somehow missing out by being a Christian, that, that you're sacrificing something that isn't worth it. Uh, for them. I, I'm persuaded that that is an enormous, um, prevalent temptation, one that I suffer, that I, that I certainly went through when I first became a Christian, and in my experience, most of us, uh, most of us have. Um, and so, the book of Hebrews, at its very centre, has a message that is powerful and uh, uh, clear for us to hold on to. And the message is, no matter what, don't give up. Keep going. Hold fast. The consequences of falling short are terrifying and terrible. And, and the consequences of holding fast are, are beyond your wildest imagination. So don't give up. Keep going. Persevere. And the way that the church then and now, is encouraged to do that. This is what's, I think, surprising and powerful, is not in some form of self-reflection. The Bible does not give you 12 rules for life to follow to get a good life. And it doesn't say, well, get involved in this charity and this organisation and this, and you do those things and, and then suddenly you'll be okay. No, instead the focus given to, to Christians who are struggling uh, in difficulty, in trial, in temptation, like all of us, is rather than fix your eyes upon yourself, fix your eyes on Jesus. Did you get that? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Understand who he is. Grasp more fully what he's done and what it means for you. Because the more you understand Jesus, um, the stronger your faith will become. The, the, the object of your faith, the, the stronger your faith will grow as your perception of the enormity of Jesus grows. But the smaller you make Jesus, the smaller you make um, of him and what he's done, well, let me tell you, your faith will be uh, brittle and weak, susceptible uh, to bending and breaking. Make much of Jesus and... The help that he offers. And it's that word help I want us to, to really revolve around tonight. I, I want us to think about um, what kind of help is it that Jesus is going to give us. And to understand that, come to verse 16 of chapter 4. Um, if you've got a Bible, keep that open. If you don't, feel free to look it up uh, on your phone. Uh, if you go uh, on TikTok or something, I can see your phones up here. Um, thanks for the two people that laughed. Um, go to verse 16. And I want to show you... Uh, I want to show you a verse that I want us to be the, like the cornerstone of, of what we're looking at tonight. Let me read it. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Help. And so the questions that I want us to, to look at as we study and, and look at this passage tonight are pretty simple. Um, what kind of help can we honestly, truly get from Jesus? Is he actually able and willing to give us the help that we need? And, and what does a life look like? A life that has actually received the help 
um, that Jesus is actually offering. And so let's, let's begin, I suppose, with, with looking at Jesus' qualifications and, and, and his willingness for help. Um, and, and to do that, come back to verse 14. Um, and remember the questions, is Jesus actually able to help? Is he willing to help? And as we look at verse 14 now together, I want you to be aware that what we're about to read is a description of Jesus today. In your mind, you might be thinking of Jesus when he walked the earth uh, as a carpenter, uh, as, a, as, as a preacher, as a teacher, maybe Jesus on the cross. Um, that is not the current picture of Jesus Christ. This is the current picture of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me read it. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Uh, we learn three things here. Jesus ascended into heaven after he died and rose from the dead. Um, Acts chapter 1 tells us he ascended through the clouds up into the heavens. And we saw a few weeks, Hebrews 1 tells us he's now currently seated at the right hand of God. And you might think, well, okay, why are we getting the table settings of heaven? Um, no, that's an, an expression, um, it, it's a symbology that depicts the reality of Jesus. Uh, it's referring to Jesus' role as the ruler of the earth. He is in equal footing with God as ruler of the entire world. He is the Lord of our lives, of the lives of, of people who don't even know him or believe in him. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And that's why he's called the Son of God. Does your Bible have that in capitals? Son of God. Jesus has always been God's eternal son. But upon his resurrection and ascension, he became given the title of Son of God, the Lord, the ruler, all authority over heaven and earth. But there's another title here that, um, that does need explanation. You see the very first one, we have a great high priest. Now, this title has already been mentioned in Hebrews, but it's of such significance that actually, if you look in your book, in your, book, in your Bible, um, the next few chapters will be focused on really dwelling into this idea of Jesus as high priest. The claim here is that right at this very moment, Jesus is, your, if you're a Christian, your high priest. But I've got to be honest, I grew up in a Christian family, a religious family, um, and I heard all the lines about Jesus. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Saviour, Jesus is Friend. What a friend we have. Does anyone know that song? I'll sing a few later. Um, Jesus' brother. But in my family, man, I don't ever remember um, a song about Jesus is my priest. What? In fact, I don't think I even uh, knew what a priest was. When I thought of a priest, well, I guess I thought of a Catholic priest. You know, a man wearing a black shirt with a clerical collar. It's called father something or other. Um, that that was a priest. But we've got to be clear here that when this expression is given to us about Jesus, it is not a reference to a Catholic priest or a Christian, Anglican, Orthodox, any type of Christian priest. That's not what it's talking about. This is actually a reference um, to the Jewish priesthood. The, the, the priesthood that we have in the Old Testament of the Bible, the bit before Jesus. Um, and, and what this is saying is that Jesus as priest is an extension of, a fulfillment of the Jewish priesthood. It's not the Catholic or the Orthodox or the Anglo, none of those things, the Jewish priesthood. And then, if you look at chapter 5, um, understanding that uh, Jesus is given the title at the end of chapter 4, then chapter 5, for those ten, first, the first 10 verses of chapter 5, what we're given is two things, really, an explanation of 
what an Old Testament priest does, his qualifications, his roles, his responsibilities, but also um, Jesus as high priest, his qualifications, his roles, his responsibilities. And, and the picture, the purpose of this is, um, is clear when you read it. Uh, the whole point of this is to contrast the Old Testament priesthood, the priesthood before Jesus, with Jesus as high priest. To work out which one's inferior, which one's superior. Now, why is that happening? Well, don't forget the context that this is written to. This is written to Jewish Christians, feeling pressure to revert back to their old religion. And so um, the author of the Hebrews is making it clear, don't do that. Jesus is better. But, but I, hope, um, I hope you don't zone out now and go, well, that's got nothing to do with me. Um, because what we need to realize as we read these next few words, that the qualifications, the roles, the responsibilities of Jesus as priest, is that this is not a, a metaphor for Jewish people to understand a different truth. Um, this is not a metaphor explaining something that doesn't have any impact on our lives. This is a statement of fact and reality about Jesus today. Jesus is your high priest. If you are a Christian, he is your high priest. If you're not a Christian, he can be your high priest. Um, and in fact, if you are a Christian here today, you are only here because he has acted as your high priest and is acting as your high priest. And so it's essential we understand uh, what's going on. Um, it's essential we ask and answer those questions. Is Jesus, um, what kind of priest is Jesus? Is he uh, one who's able to help us and willing? So anyway, uh, very, very quickly, look at the first uh, four verses of chapter 5. Um, we see here these qualifications given to us of the Old Testament high priest. I, I really just want you to focus on one of them above all else. It's in verse 1. Um, the role of the high priest in the Old Testament in, in the Jewish time was to act as a, um, to represent the people in matters related to God. They, they were a mediator between God and man, and, go, and men and God. And the way that they would primarily do that uh, is through sacrifice. Once a year, it was a day called Day of Atonement. Um, and they would take an animal to the temple and they would sacrifice this animal um, to atone for the sins of the people. But it's also worth noting here that, of course, you see this verse 3, um, he also had to atone for his own sins because the high priest in the Jewish world, he was a human being, he was a sinner. Uh, so he was atoning for his own sins. Uh, and so we see he's a human being, he's empathetic, um, he, he, um, he, he acts as a mediator between God and man, um, but he's also sinful. What's important to notice, though, about this Old Testament high priest is that a little bit like um, many of the things in the Old Testament, um, the high priest was a terrific role that God had given his people for that time and his purpose, but um, by his very intention, his, he was only ever designed to be temporary. Um, a bit like the promised land and the Sabbath, the covenants, the law, um, the prophets, those things are wonderful gifts in the Old Testament if you know them, but they're designed to be signposts to something else, something bigger. And not a temporary solution to the permanent problem of sin like the high priest in the Jewish time offered, but rather um, something bigger and better, something eternal. Look at verse 6. To the forever high priest, the eternal one. And the claim here is that that forever high priest in the order of Melchizedek is Jesus. The question is, um, well, what can 
What can that possibly have to do with us? What difference does it make in our lives? Is, is he able to help us in this? Is he, is he, is he willing? I've got a friend who's a fireman. And you know he's a fireman because he tells you all the time um, that he's a fireman. He can't stop telling people. Uh, the other day he went to a job uh, that was one of the biggest of his career. Uh, there was a, a, a paint factory explosion in around Newcastle or something, and uh, he's from Newcastle, and he went there, and uh, it had just paint, obviously highly flammable, it was just boom, a factory after factory after factory, on fire, incredibly dangerous. There were 50 fire engines that went to it, 200 firemen, um, and you know, obviously the, 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 the fire brigade is incredibly well resourced. I told him I was going to tell this story, he says, make sure they know it's not the, it's not the rural fire, it's not the volunteer fire brigade, it's the real one. I said, yeah, it makes a big difference, mate. Anyway, so they're incredibly well-resourced. You know, they've got their hoses and their calendars and I don't know what they've got, you know, axes to, uh, to fight fire. Um, but I want you to imagine a different scenario, two different scenarios for me. Imagine that they get there and instead of pulling out the equipment, um, they take a, a water pistol and they run out of that. They're willing to, to fix, but it doesn't, what help can they possibly be? They're completely incapable of doing anything uh, tangible. But imagine the other scenario, that they're in the fire uh, um, station, and who knows what they do in there. Um, and uh, the alarm goes, and they just look at each other and they're like, yeah, no. They might be capable of helping, but entirely unwilling. The question we need to answer is, is Jesus capable of offering you any help, a help that will change your life, a help that will actually do something? And is he willing? Does he give a, a darn about you? Does he care? Verse 6, sorry, verse 5 to verse 10. We learn uh, two things uh, I think that are, uh, are interesting, well, important, um, about Jesus' connection with the Old Testament high priest. We learn immediately, um, when you look at verse 7, that Jesus, like the Old Testament high priest, was a man. A human being. He was fully human. And he cried out with, with prayers to God, with, with tears to God. He's fully human. Um, like the Old Testament high priest, oh, I forgot to mention this, but like the Old Testament high priest, um, you see in, in verse 4, uh, the Old Testament high priest had to be chosen by God. He didn't volunteer himself. And then in verse 5, we see Jesus um, didn't choose to be high priest. God made him uh, uh, the Son of God and made him that forever high priest. But that's where the connections of the Old Testament priesthood they kind of, they peter out, they end. Um, because remember, the Old Testament high priest had to offer sacrifices um, for the people and who else? Himself. Why? Because he was sinful. And so he had to keep doing it year after year after year after year after year. It, to, it went on and on and on and on and on. It was a temporary problem to the permanent problem that we have of sin. But look at verse 7 to verse Verse 10. Jesus was perfectly obedient to God. And he suffered and he was tempted. Verse 15 of chapter 4. He did not sin. And so Jesus, the fully human, chosen by God and perfect, did not come to the temple, did not come with an animal to, to offer sins as a sinful man for sinful people, but instead offered up himself. Jesus did not offer a temporary 
solution to the permanent problem of sin. He offered an eternal solution to the permanent problem that you and I have that is far, far greater than any other problem. Sin. And whilst you and I might think, hold on, you think that's my problem? You should see my love life. That's my problem. Or lack of, that's my problem. I want to say, uh, your problems today do matter to God. And we're going to look at that. But the biggest problem you have, whether you know it or not, is not of today. It's of the eternal tomorrow. And the help Jesus offers, the greatest help you need, is to reach out his hand and bring you with him to eternity. I want to say, you know, if if we have a problem as a culture um, in how we view other people, which I think we do, you know, that that temptation to compare ourselves with others, um, to look at the lives of other people and say, I want that, I'm missing out, I don't have that, I want that, that will give me the happiness that I want. Or if we have a problem in how we deal with the past, and I think that's also true, it's very easy for people to be prisoners to the past, to constantly uh, uh, glorify the past in a way that makes the, the present seem entirely inadequate. Those things are nothing compared to the problem we have as a culture when we think about the future, eternity. Because our culture is utterly convinced that it's not going to happen. Let me ask you a question to try and flesh this out a bit. Where will you be in five years' time? What age will you be? What will you be doing? Let's press it further. What about 10 years? Where will you be in 10 years' time? Man, I will be old in 10 years' time. I'll be... Oh, anyway. We all have our hopes and dreams and desires, don't you? What are your desires? Where do you want to be? What do you want to be doing? You might not have clarified, articulated what they are, but the general desire that we have romantically, financially, professionally, personally, the things that we want to do and achieve. And in fact, we, we worry about the future. We are a nation of worries, anxiously concerned about what the future is going to hold for all of us. But what's staggering is that um, for a group of people, a, group, a nation of people utterly obsessed with tomorrow, how little time most people spend thinking about what happens after tomorrow. Let me press this further. Where will you be in a hundred years' time? What do you think? We spend a lot of time thinking about the next 5, 10, 15 days. And I want to say that even though 100 years' time, 200, 300 years' time seems like a very long way away, it is coming. It is real. It's as real as tomorrow. And even though our culture says that death is the end, do what you want now, focus on now, this is it. Jesus says, Jesus says, no, that's not true. Don't believe that. That's not true. You, me, we, we, you are an eternal being. Do you think that about yourself? You are an eternal being with an eternal future. In 100 years' time, every single one of us will be alive. The question you must answer is, where will you be? And how will you get there? 
I want you to look at verse 9, and I want you to take hold of what I think is um, just poetically magnificent, but more than poetry. It's powerful because it's real. Jesus offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice, and in so doing became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Jesus is able to help, qualified beyond measure. No one else is qualified like Jesus is. But even better than his qualification, he is willing to help. Jesus' death is not an accident, it's not a tragedy, it's not a blip of history. Jesus chose to die. He prophesied about it, he promised it, he willingly went to it. He threw himself in the face of danger. He, he, he was silent in the face of persecution. He died. And in so doing, took the punishment that our sin deserves. When he rose from the dead and ascended into the heaven, eternal salvation was offered to all of us who would obey. Jesus is willing to help you, to give the help that you need more than anyone. He is willing to change your eternity transform it to rescue you and I do want to pause uh, and and just as 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 we consider what we in in the church what Christians for 2,000 years have called the gospel and the gospel is a word which means good news um, but that good news that it's talking about is this the death and resurrection the ascension of Jesus okay that's what the gospel is when you consider the gospel and don't answer out loud some people in the morning answered this question out loud please don't um You know, old people, they're crazy. Um, When you consider this good news, what Jesus has done for you, let me ask you, do you consider this to be good news? More than that, do you consider what we've just discussed about Jesus, Jesus as high priest and what he's done for you and sacrificing himself for your return, do you consider this to be the greatest news you've ever heard? Do you? Did you once, but now through any number of reasons, repetition, boredom, distraction, allure, temptation, it's now pushed further and further down. My friends, if that is you, if this news was once the greatest news, but now is not, or if it's not ever been, I want to say two things to you. The first one, is that the only thing that you can do is is come to God and ask Him for help. Because if this isn't the greatest news you've ever heard, if this isn't the most important truth you've ever grasped, then there's every chance that that's the case because you've never grasped it. That that it's not yours. And so you need to come to God for help. You, you need to take the hand that, that Jesus has offered you to drag you out of, of eternal death. And it said, be pulled up to the heavens for eternity. Jesus' language, the, the Bible's language about salvation is always about new beginnings, new beginnings, new beginnings, new creation, new creation. Flesh on bones, life where there was death, light where there was darkness, 
And I want to urge you, beg you, come to God for help. Either for the first time or or come back to him for help and say, God, I want that. But the second thing I want to say to you um, is that Jesus as high priest, um, what he tells us in this passage is that he's not just willing and able to help your eternal future. But the reason you can have confidence in coming to the throne of God and asking him for help is because Jesus as high priest offers you help today. The help that Jesus offers you is not just about your eternity. It's actually for you today so that you can persevere, so that you can keep going, so that you can continue to walk as a Christian for all of your days and face all the temptations of the world and push them to the side and hold fast. So the question is, how does Jesus help you today? And to answer that, I want to actually go back right back to the beginning, that those verses that we're looking at from chapter 4. I want you to look at verse 14, because there's the key to what we're about to look at right at the end of it. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. So understanding the reality of Jesus and what he's done for us in the eternal, uh, the eternal world, the, the eternal future that he's offered, in the light of that, the command, the advice, the suggestion uh, that we're given is to hold firm to our faith. Why? Because that faith uh, is the thing that will help you today. It's the, the faith um, that will actually help you continue in the faith. I want to show you two ways um, that Jesus offers to help you today through the faith that you have. Um, and let me make it very clear that these two ways, um, they display for us not just what Jesus will do, but the great heart um, that Jesus has for you in the process. Have a look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. When Jesus lived, he was fully human, and he was tempted, it says, tempted in every way. Now, we need to make it clear what that actually means. Um, Jesus was not tempted in the sinful way that we're tempted. Um, he didn't go through every sinful temptation that we have. He didn't lust. Um, he was tempted to, um, to shoplift or steal. That, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Rather, the temptation Jesus went through was so much greater and stronger and more powerful, and he resisted it all that he is able to empathize with every single smaller one that we have. You see, the temptation Jesus went through was to what? Was to abandon his father's plan, to walk away from the relationship he had with his father, to turn his back on his father, who he had been in communion with for eternity. And yet he resisted that. And so Jesus resisted all temptation, but understands the temptations that we have. But it's not just temptation that he understands. Look what else it says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. I don't know if you've ever considered this before, but when Jesus lived, he suffered through the same weaknesses that we do. 
betrayal. Have you ever been betrayed? Pain. Sadness. Abandonment. Grief. Loneliness. Have you ever been lonely? I remember I moved to a new city uh, years and years ago. Darwin. You ever been to Darwin? Man. Woo. Darwin's a hard enough city when you've got mates. Let me tell you, when you go there and you don't... I I went to Darwin. um, I'd moved there for work and I didn't know a soul for two weeks. And if you ever want to know what loneliness is like, you know. um, Jesus knew what it was to be lonely. Jesus gets you. I think we, we consider sometimes um, that when life is going well, Jesus is with us. Okay, I'm going well, life's good, Jesus is here. But this passage tells us the opposite. That it's in our weaknesses, in our temptation, that Jesus is here. We I think we consider our weaknesses and our temptation and, and, and we worry that God and Jesus are turning their backs on us in those times. We worry that when Jesus sees us stuff up again and again and again and again, that surely he'll pull his hair out and go, that's it, I'm done. He'll turn the cold shoulder. I've got a guy um, who's... <laughs> uh, I, I was... Uh, I thought we were bantering on text message. It turns out he didn't think we were bantering on text message. Um, and he was deeply offended by something I said. And so um, I, I had to apologize, and I did apologize. Uh, but he gave me two weeks of the cold shoulder. Are you, are you a cold shoulder guy? Yeah, deal with that. I'm going to hold on to this for a while. We think Jesus is like that. But he's not like that. You and I, we are never alone. And the key to knowing that is that word in the middle, Empathy. And the word empathy, uh, actually the, the actual translation that the Bible uses is actually the word sympathy. But the modern translators have used empathy because sympathy is used differently to how it traditionally was. But the better word is sympathy. You see, sympathy isn't pity. It's not the hallmark card kind of, I'm sorry, things are bad. They're there. Sympathy, the word sympathy means feel what you feel. More than that, I have felt what you have felt, and so I feel what you feel. And in your weakness and in your temptation, Jesus feels that. That's what this passage is saying. He does not flee from us in our weakness and temptation. He runs to us. Jesus gets you. He gets you. You ever met somebody just... You don't even say anything, just yes. You get each other. Jesus understands you. He gets you. And even though he is in the heavens, the physical distance between you and Jesus has not eradicated his warmth and affection for you. Jesus loves you more than anyone has ever loved you, more than you ever love anyone. Jesus knows more about you than anyone else and yet still loves you more than anyone else. He gets you, and he's here for you today, now. In your weakness and temptation, he's here, even in our sin. And no, Jesus didn't sin, but he resisted it. He understands, and he's there for you. 
And it's because of that. I want you to check out verse 16 here. It's because of Jesus' sympathy and empathy and understanding that you and I can do something today, something beyond imagination. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Help. Help. In the Old Testament, God's throne was a place of terror, holiness, judgment, the judgment seat. But how is it described here? The throne of grace. Jesus, as our forever, eternal high priest, has not just transformed our eternal tomorrow, but our today, and how we relate to God. God. We can, talk, we can know God. And rather than falling short and falling away and slipping to the side, we can approach God's throne. And that word approach is a continual approaching. We can just keep approaching, 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 approaching. We fall short, approaching, approaching. We crawl towards approaching, approaching. We draw near to God with confidence. Like the little boy running into the White House. You know, and he runs past the, the Secret Service agents and he, he runs past the staff and he runs past all the other politicians and no one stops him and he runs straight into the president's room. Why? Because that president is his father. We may approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And the word confidence is a speaking word. Specifically speaking. This is talking about uh, prayer. The help we need today is to be found in the faith that we can have as a result of what the great high priest has done for our eternal future. And that eternal future has given us a faith we can profess with our lips, but also a faith that we can take to our Lord God, to his throne, through grace and mercy, to speak to him, to hear from him. So we do not fall. We do not break and bend. But we, we hold fast. And so we've got those, uh, those truths emerge. I hope you see beautiful, wonderful truths emerge. Um, Jesus is our priest, willing and able for forever. But he's also our priest, willing and able, deeply willing and deeply able to sympathize with us and give us the help we need. The help we need today is to cling close to God, to follow him, to come to him, to approach him. You see, the purpose of this passage, and, and actually the, the passages as they continue, um, is to encourage the Hebrew church originally, but the church today, to stop viewing life outside of Jesus as better, but rather to view Jesus in the reality of the enormity of his size and majesty and beauty and understand that he is always, always, always better. For the Hebrew church, the temptation was to look backwards, to look backwards. That life was better than what I have now. But for us, dear friends, um, and I think this is different um, with the older crew in the morning. Uh, there's a real nostalgia kind of issue. Um, but I think for, for us in this room, for you here in this room, um, the, the biggest temptation, I, I I'm persuaded, is not the, the temptation to look backwards, but the temptation to look sideways. 
to look with jealousy at the lives of your friends, your family, your colleagues, your whoever. To look at the life that they live and think, wow, that's freedom. That's fun. And to, to so build up, Photoshop the life that they live, cut and paste it, and to, to glorify and maximize it, that when you compare and contrast it to the life you live today, your life will never compare. It's inadequate, inferior, it's not better, it's boring. That's better, not this. You know, um, these type of temptations, backwards, side to side, they, they come from different places, but um, I think at their very centre, they all have the same, um, the same disease. They're symptoms of the same disease. The allure and the desire to, to look elsewhere in, in our Christian life um, comes from the disease of, uh, the word is disbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief. And unbelief is, is a term that's the opposite of belief, which is the refusal to accept something as true. And the reason the outside world looks so attractive is that at some part of us, we can refuse to believe the promises of Jesus are actually true. And so we're jealous and we, 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 we worry that we'll miss out because we see that and we don't see this and we think that's better than this. And so our unbelief grows and grows and grows and, and we begin to lose our trust in the promises of Jesus. And yet the wonderful news for us is that the cure to this disease is found in the exact opposite place as where the disease springs from. The cure to the disease of unbelief, it's right there. Look at verse 14. Since we have a great high priest, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. The cure to unbelief, to the lack of trust, to the jealousy and the, and the regret and the desire will not be found inside you. It's not going to be found through you refusing to, um, to be on social media or refusing to ever go to a pub or refusing to hang out with any non-Christians anymore. Or, now, it might be, there might be a time in your life to do those things. I'm not saying that. But, that's, but the long-term answer to the temptation to abandon Jesus must be found not in fixating your eyes on yourself, but in fixing your eyes above on Jesus. My friends, make much of Jesus. Understand him. Work mentally to, to, to grapple with who he is, to understand the enormity of who he is. And I promise you, that no matter how big your vision of Jesus is, it will never ever compare to the reality of how big Jesus is. And as the object of your faith grows, so your faith will correspondingly grow with it. Because you will always be able to understand that Jesus is better. You see, as Christian people, we're not called to live in the past. And we're not called to live Jealously looking side to side. Oh, look what I'm giving up for Jesus. Where's my medal? 
oh, I've given up those things for Jesus. That is not what we are called to do. No, no. For the Christian, for us, we are to cling to the truth that the best is always yet to come. That our eternal future is secure by our great high priest. We may cling to it and, and run towards it, approach it endlessly again and again and again with confidence. And that day by day we may call on our great high priest for help. The one who knows us, who sympathizes with us, who gets us. Now that's our high priest. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, your son. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who rules and reigns over all things, but also our great high priest who has secured our future forever. And the one who knows us and gets us and sympathizes and empathizes and offers us help. The one who intercedes for us, who prays for us daily to you today, right now. And Lord, I pray for every single one of us here that we in our lifetime may make much of Jesus. That we may grip tightly the faith that you have given us. And I pray for those here who, who are actually not one step, but ten steps down that, that alleyway um, of jealousy or, or chasing a life that's outside of Jesus, convinced that it's better. Um, that through the power of your spirit and your word, you will convince them deeply of the truth that Jesus is always, always, always better. Um, it never compares. He is always glorious. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.